Welcome to the trending note uh, for this week. Uh, we have an amazing guest today, uh, a man of great knowledge, uh, one who's definitely got his finger on the pulse with a lot of the heavier bands out there. Um, he comes to us from the great state of New York, but is out here in Los Angeles. Um, he's worked in touch with such bands as Bad Wolves, um, Five Finger Death Punch, Hell Yeah, and as well as many others. Um, he's also worked on some many landmark cases as far as intellectual property law goes, especially the RIAA case versus Napster. Um, hope we get a lot of great pearls out of him today. I'm sure he is. He's a man who's never for a loss of words, but uh, please welcome Eric German. Oh, shucks. Thank you so much, Michael. It's really great to, uh, to chat with you, and thanks for having me. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, it's been been an interesting year. I know you 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 say to me on a on a regular basis that was your last lunch you had before lockdown, and it's been it been a year this week. Yeah, I remember you coming by. Yeah, uh, a, a burger or a salad or something out uh, on the patio out there with my offices. For those who don't know, I I have uh, I work at a law firm called Mitchell Silverberg and Up, and we have uh, you know these these really deluxe. Beautiful They're sort of like what you would think if you were casting a movie and you were thinking about um, uh, a, a, a silly Hollywood lawyer, right? And, you know, with the <laughs> sweeping views of the Hollywood signs and all of that. We moved in there in March of 2019 and got to spend, I don't know, <laughs> eight months, nine months uh, or a year. Uh, and then uh, obviously I've been there about three times since then. So, wow. uh Michael, you uh, you came by for lunch that day, and I remember sitting there uh, chatting with you about you know what what is what is this? What's going on? What do you think is going to happen? I remember we were talking about South by Southwest having yeah. killed and such, and then uh, of course the world uh, completely changed, and that's the last time I ate lunch at the office. That's for sure. Oh wow! I mean, it, it's so so crazy. Now we're a year later. You know, quick question that's been on my mind, and I've asked a few people this, and I'd be interested in what your opinion would be on it. Um, With all of this time that artists have had this past year to kind of create and be on their own and stream, do you think it's been a help or a hindrance in kind of the process of them moving forward? I mean, take tours off the table, but just like as far as the stuff that artists are turning out, is is it not enough? other things going on for them that it just like they create, create, create. And it's, and it's not. Well, I, I think, I think the artists have done a wonderful job of rising to the occasion of continuing to engage with fans to find new creative ways. Uh, you know, if I want to be positive and give people a pat on the back, say, you know, really uh, rose to the challenge and really stepped up. And, you know, for the most part, the artist community has stayed front of mind and has continued to generate content and to, to do cool things and and find ways to make money, but also to uh, build a fan base and, and get ahead. If I want to be negative, I'll say, you know, it's funny how all these these people are now doing all the things they probably should have been doing all along because sure, it's part of the gig, man. It's in and you know we just it forced everyone to get real about the online component and about the uh, uh, the things that can be done outside of the touring world. I think a lot. You know, uh, people who are a little out of date were forced to grow up pretty quickly in terms of uh, realizing the new streaming world and and realizing how to engage with fans through uh, other means besides, 
you know, hitting the road and packing a van and playing bars and clubs. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think it was great. I mean, one of the things uh, I got my first COVID vaccine shot earlier this week. And uh, I feel like, uh, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I'm talking, people talk about festivals and touring and all of that cool stuff. And, you know, it's very exciting. I'm very, 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 uh, bullish on let's get out there and let's open up and let's uh, get our community and our, our business back together. At the same time, there is a part of me that thinks that those of us who were who put our heads down during this uh, pandemic and really went to work, I felt like the, the, in some ways the world hit pause. And now we had a year, basically like a bonus year, like mm-hmm. a O-day, right? Yeah. And what, what did you get done with it? And in some ways I kind of, you know, it's a little scary to think that that is now over and passed. And as we hit the gas pedal and go back to real life, we all got to take a look and say, well, how did we use our COVID year? Right. Yeah. What did we get done? And to the extent that people were on pause and the, to the extent that people did pack it in and become insular and not really progress, I feel like we were all running a marathon and some people stopped and sat down on the side of the road and some people running. So I guess now I'm a little bit like taking stock of the fact that whatever I was able to do to get ahead, that's about what it's pretty much over now. And now it's time the race is going to start again. Yeah, no. And I I can totally feel that. I mean, I was, I was put on the sidelines just because of the way COVID kind of was structured. You know, my day job as most people know, is I, I work as an investment advisor and it's, you know, I couldn't see people the way I used to, but the bonus, but bonus to that was I was able to see more people because I was on Zoom. Oh, you know? it's incredible. It's incredible how easy it is. First of all, uh, I attended every panel and conference and everything during you know, I, I set up a second laptop and while I was answering emails all day, I usually had some lecture or speech or podcast or something, some live stream streaming in the background. And, you know, there are so many things that I would have never gotten in the car and fought traffic and gone to sit at a rubber chicken lunch to listen to somebody talk about like the top five copyright cases of the last year or whatever. But if I see that hit my inbox, I'm like, sure, I'll click on that link and watch that for sure. Yeah, no, totally. And that's the thing is like, that's, that's actually a great point. So copyright cases of the past year are we seeing kind of a change because of COVID of how copyrights were kind of approached in that time or no? Well, remember that uh, litigation, the the wheels of justice grind a bit slower than we would think. And so even if like the COVID was to have impacted that and then a case had been filed, it probably wouldn't even be to the point of a decision. By the time someone's talking on a panel about recent copyright cases, they're probably talking about cases, you know, for things that happened a few years ago. So, That said, uh, you know, is there more litigation? I think there was less litigation because for the courts were generally shut down for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is, is much more work for music attorneys. That's for sure. I've never been busier than I was in this last year. And in fact, I had one of my best years, if not my best year ever. Right. Um, you know, but a lot of that had to do with working a lot harder and hustling and kind of different types of work. Uh, rather than sitting back and commissioning touring artists, right? Yeah, no, totally. And the thing is, is you know, speaking to that point, you know, I have another question for you. I think most people don't understand 
you know, especially musicians, because if they don't reach the level of going to an MSK or to you, um, what the importance of an attorney is when you get to that level, when you're touring like a 500 death punch or bad wolves or someone like that kind of explain what your role is in that situation for someone at that level. Yeah. So, so obviously we're sort of like, if, if bands are small companies, uh, you know, uh, or medium companies or in the cases of some rather large companies, um, they're at the, at the core of their companies. And, you know, I'm often the general counsel of that company. Right. So whatever happens, whatever advice, whatever, you know, when when you're on a, a commission basis, and you're part of the team or even when you're getting paid by the hour uh, and you're part of the team, there are, you know, a myriad of issues that can come up, whether it's touring agreements or merchandising agreements or record deals or streaming deals or doing producer agreements or songwriter split agreements or or somebody's going to feature on a track or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, there's all the disputes that arise, whether it's intellectual property or someone's infringing merch online or dealing with the trademark, dealing with immigration for former foreign band members. Sometimes there's tax issues. There was a lot of stuff to do with these PPP loans this last year, mm-hmm. dealing with, uh, you know, and then there are band member agreements and there are, uh, you know, promotion sponsorship deals and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What I found was, uh, you know, in the last year, there was a lot more emphasis on streaming and people starting to really realize that you could make money, a lot of DIY self-releases through distributors and things like that. that. Lawyers deal with all that stuff, right? What I do in part of my personal brand, in part because I'm, I enjoy it, and in part because I've worked with a lot of developing artists for a long time, I like to actually, to the extent that artists want this from me, I get involved with more. Uh, some of the, 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 the business decisions, a little bit of the creative decisions, certainly discuss, you know, I see myself as, as part of the management team, uh, maybe not a manager. I'm very deferential to the managers, but uh, as part of the team that can be, you know, some artists call me and they want me to listen to their new songs. And some artists call me and ask me, you know, should they do this creatively or should they do that creatively? And certainly a lot of the managers that I enjoy working with the most are uh, consulting me on a daily or, uh, you know, a few times a week basis. So I spent a lot of time on the phone. I spent a lot of time listening to music. I spent a lot of time strategizing about how to break bands and how to find opportunities and connect dots and network and just really advocate for these bands generally mm-hmm advance them through the maze that is the music business uh yeah. you know sometimes that involves deals sometimes that involves disputes sometimes that involves making introductions and hooking them up sometimes it involves sourcing features or getting someone to take them out on tour that kind of so maybe not all of my colleagues do all of that it's rather exhausting and sometimes i realize i don't have much of a life beyond my family and my work but there it is yeah, but I mean, the thing is, is what, what's interesting about you, what I've noticed about you getting to know you over the past year is you have this great amount of um, synergistic jump, let's just say, between knowing what creatively artists can do because you are a musician <laughs> and the dogs. Family right there. That's that's <laughs> Little Miss Almond. <laughs> Instagram famous. I've seen your dog a bunch. Right. Thank you. Um, but 
but the thing is, is you have this very great synergistic jump where you are able to creatively, you know, I remember you told me one of the first times when we had lunch, you were like, I know my way around a studio. I was like, well, not too many lawyers could say that, you know, they're, yeah, the nuts and, and I'm certainly no Michael, I'm certainly no Michael Jackson or, uh, or, 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 uh, uh, you know, any of the, the star producers that are my clients or anything like that. But yeah, I would, what is playing guitar, right? I was, in my high school, you were either a jock or a stoner or a, into fixing cars or whatever, or, or you were like into music. And so I hung with the kids that spent all day, you know, taking guitar lessons and trying to learn how to play Ingbe Malmsteen songs mm. on neoclassical uh, modal theory and, and uh, dealing with uh, reading and writing music. To me, it was cool if you could uh, do four-part harmonies on paper uh, and that was cooler than than a lot of other things. And so I got in with that crew where we were trying to emulate, you know, the, our heroes, whether it was Judas Priest or Pantera or Metallica. Sure. And uh, I spent a lot of time in that world. So when coming to doing what I do, you know, I've learned how to play most Metallica and Slayer songs on guitar. I uh, definitely can fake my way through a guitar solo. I can keep a basic 4-4 beat on the drums. And uh, I played bass in a cover band in law school where like one band was doing YouTube covers on a Lansdowne Street after Boston Red Sox games. And I had another band that was uh, female fronted that was doing 90s alternative rock stuff. And so, you know, I learned all those songs by year and that kind of thing. So that it's helped. So, it's so funny that you and I never cross paths because the time that you're kind of saying of when you were in these certain places, I was either doing sound in Boston around Rhode Island, or I was in Syracuse <laughs> recording. It's so funny, but anyway, um, but yeah, but I mean, that's, that's, but, but a lot of lawyers don't have that, that niche. So I feel like you, you lend yourself to, you let a certain, you know, um, certain quad to your clients where it's like, you know, Hey, I understand your plight. I'm not just your lawyer. And I can't, that, that's certainly, that's certainly what I try to trade on a lot. And, and to be, and I really appreciate you saying that because to me, that's a compliment. It's both a liability. It's both a blessing and a curse because on the one hand, you know, I am more like them than I am like the people that do what I do. I'm more apt to socialize with someone in a band than I, uh, with and and that's I learned pretty early and some music business mentors kind of took me aside and said you know man you can't be friends with the artists and it is true it's really hard to be uh, both an authority figure and you know they don't want another band guy is in my role they want someone to be you know responsible and have good judgment and to coach them appropriately and to understand there are certain things that my job requires yeah. that me to be different than them right and i'm certainly not the one on stage and people aren't coming to see me right but uh i do think that uh there's also the aspect that i can understand and i can relate to them and so i think i've formed deeper bonds and real relationships with a lot of my clients also you know than, than some people might have otherwise done if you were so far removed from it i also think that we, you know, that adage, do what you love and you never work a day in your life. Well, I love rock and roll. And so I immerse myself in it and I can work 14, 16 hour days talking to people about music, listening mm -hmm. to visiting the recording studio, flying out to attend a festival gig. And 
that doesn't feel always like work, you know? Yeah, yeah no, I, I totally get it. And it's, um, it's really the thing of like, if you, you know, most people go, well, I'm going to go to law school and that's what I'm going to do. Was that kind of the thing for you or was it always law? As so I, I went, I went to Syracuse university Yep. and I was uh, a job working for a concert promoter in upstate New York out of school. And we were doing, uh, putting on big uh, summer outdoor concerts. We did Metallica, we did Van Halen, we did uh, uh, a whole bunch of, uh, you know, cool bands, right? Or is it like um, Darian Lake or something like that? What'd you say? Was it Darian Lake or something like that? So it's funny, you you know, the upstate New York, yeah. I worked for a guy, our, I worked out of the Cayuga County Fairgrounds in Weedsport, oh, yeah. New York. Sure. I had uh, done some gigs in the Orange County Fairgrounds in Middletown, New York. Like these outdoor there. Race tracks. Yeah, right. Well, I probably did that. Thing, right. <laughs> with, with uh, uh, there you go. The the great radio controversy, I think, was the tour, something like that. It was Some, a psychotic supper. Okay. So yeah. I I did I did uh, Metallica on the Black album, which was wow. cool. I did the first Fish because I went to school in upstate New York, and my fraternity was full of deadheads and hippies, and uh, they had been into this club band called Fish P H I S H. I had brought that to our, uh, um, our, you know, my boss and suggested that they book that. So he added that to a bunch of festival dates on this thing called the Horde Tour, H-O-R-D-E. Yep. And we combined that, the Allman Brothers Tour, the Horde Tour, and some fish dates and did some big shows that really did very, very well. Wow. And that gave a lot of credibility. We did that. Did uh, Van Halen with Sammy Hagar, uh, some of that, some of that cool stuff. And in the end, it was, uh, it was really fun. It was a crash course in, I did everything from reviewing contracts and helping to pick the bands to uh, literally driving around the radio stations with hard tickets and uh, record stores and putting up posters and the whole deal. Right. Wow. I really enjoyed it and learned a lot, but then I found that, you know, I wasn't making very much money. And I talked to a booking agent um, uh, and a few other people that were involved with that. And I said to them, how do I fast forward my career in the music business? I want to work in the music business. I don't want to make $300 a week uh, at the table or whatever the heck it was back then, right? And I said, uh, they said, why don't you try law school? So I bought a book from the bookstore and uh, like how to, take the LSAT or something. And I just did it when I didn't really study that much. And lo and behold, I did very well. So, and then I said, well, what the heck, let me try to get into law school and see where I can get in. And then it became fun. And as I was waiting for those responses, I started really uh, hoping that I would get in. And then when I did get into Boston university school of law, I started getting excited about that. And, you know, the next thing you know, I was there I, at the same time, I was really interested in the internet. I went to law school in 1994 and I graduated in 1997. And I was really interested in the internet and I got my first email address and that kind of stuff. And I was thinking this could be the future for music. You could get all your music through a computer and, and uh, we could connect and unite fan bases and find each other. I was posting on uh, internet and message boards and news groups and like reviewing metal albums for like... Oh, wow trading cassettes with people I met on those forums in like Europe and stuff. And uh, at the same time, my first torts professor at Boston University School of Law was a, uh, a copyright expert. 
And so I started realizing the intersection between music and computers and copyright law. And that was my entree. I became her research assistant and I got really, really into this idea that music was going to uh, be digital digital, and that we were going to get all our music through a computer. And I thought that could unite. I mean, well, I was a metalhead growing up and isolated from my friends in high school. And I thought that uh, the, um, uh, the, the, when Nirvana kind of killed metal dead, I thought that, you know, I was still into certain music that was no longer on the radio. And uh, this would be a cool way to let music live, even if the gatekeepers decided it wasn't cool anymore. So I was sort of evangelical about the idea that we could unite fan bases and, and move the business online and, and, and create new ways to consume and, and unite around a community on the internet. So it became like my mission in life and it really dovetailed nicely with uh, what was going on in the world. Yeah. That's amazing. So you, 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 I mean, that's, that's great that you had the, not only passion for music, but could see what the future was going to be. And I mean, now flash forward to 2021, you know, this was another question I really, really had for you. And when we talked last, we kind of touched on this, but like, I really wanted to kind of pick your brain on this. The whole concept of now we have companies like Hypnosis, like Vine in New York that are going out and buying producers' catalogs and their writer shares, going out and buying bands' catalogs and their writer shares in perpetuity. Do you see that as being the future now versus where everybody would strive to go for a publishing deal, essentially? Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny that... um, you know, in the 50s, the music business was uh, the, the companies owned everything and there was no ownership or direct control, right? Right. It became much more common that everyone would co-own and do co-pub deals with, uh, or, or admin deals and hold on to their publishing and all that. But there was still the record companies uh, would own the copyrights that work for hire. And sure. nowadays it seems like there is a lot more emphasis on these catalog sales for a whole bunch of reasons we can get into, which, you know, can be really, really exciting because they're big chunks of money. Frankly, if an artist can get that money and, and invest it and do more and get better returns sure. without touching the principal or something, there's, there's a lot of tax reasons and things like that. Confluence of factors that, that really, uh, you know, push this. What's funny is on the master side, on the record company side, I've become much more interested in the self-determination that the artists own their copyrights on the master side and using a lot of these uh, label services or distribution deals uh, have become really exciting in that regard. There's a lot of activity there. So where it was once everybody owned everything, I mean, the, the companies owned everything, then it was the artist or the songwriter would own their publishing, but give away their master rights. Now I see them, selling the publishing again and now focusing more on the master rights and trying to own that. And, you know, it's, it's cyclical. We can get into uh, whatever level you want, but I I think it's kind of cool. I, it's certainly been a way for a lot of people to pull money out. Uh, It's kind of like pulling equity out of your home mortgage or something. There's a lot of people really and it's really cool to see these people get rich, uh, like straight up stone cold rich on some of these mm-hmm. deals. Like like in the kind of money where your kids are going to be uh, wearing uh, uh, private crests on their on their jackets from their 
their their school, you know, their fancy private school or whatever. Like that kind of, you know, you, when your grandchildren are going to go to private school because of the, the rock songs you wrote, it's kind of cool, right? And it's yeah. nice to see people be able to get that money. Um, so I'm I'm both pro and con. I think it's an individual decision. Um, it's certainly really interesting and really exciting space right now. Yeah, because it's it's you know I, I see even younger guys doing it right now, where it's not like the Bob Rocks, which everyone's seen that story of how he has basically sold his rights to Black Album, I think, and Load, um, and a few other things he had, Michael Bublé or whatnot, and in, you know, or Bob Dylan. I mean, it makes sense. I mean, you're not going to pay taxes on 80 million your tax liability is much better if you buy it all at once and then it's a capital gains exchange um yes you know but whereas if they were getting that as ordinary income it would be taxed differently be taxed differently you'd be taxed at probably the highest you know the highest income tax if you can get if you can get 10 15 20 times i don't know where it lies right yeah Uh, paid in advance and you can get paid at, you know, 17% less on, on taxable basis. Uh, I mean, your tax life is, is less. Um, there's a lot that you can do with that money. Uh, there's you know? tons. And there's tons. It, it could be really exciting. Of course, the downside is you don't own it anymore. And that's yeah. the end. That's it. Your stuff could be used for commercial, you know, interests that you might not necessarily agree with, but it's not your problem anymore. Because yeah. someone else owns it. Someone else if I told you, I'll give you a dollar a year for the rest of your life, or instead I'll give you $20 right now, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. It, I plan it, on living longer than 20 years, but, you know. Yeah, no, exactly. But, you know, <laughs> could, you, could you cash in on the interest on the $20 quicker than you would as the dollar per year that you would receive? Yeah. You know, who knows? It's the, it's the but game. But it's really exciting. It, it, I think the real headline in all this is the news that um, that uh, people are there's money in streaming. There's a lot of money in you know uh, Goldman Sachs last year had a new report that said uh, you know where streaming revenue is going to double or triple by 2030. Yeah. You're seeing new countries come online. You know India, yeah. China, and new territories that bringing tons of people that are uh, buying premium subscriptions. You're seeing a rate of people these premium subscriptions even higher and uh you're just in general you know a lot of this revenue by the time it, it's steady revenue it's really predictable yeah. and uh as a lot of people see it as a good investment with low interest rates and things like that totally and then on the flip side of that from the label or publishing side you look at someone like upmg umpg <coughs> excuse me um that did the deal with tencent to bring their stuff to china and to asia so that it can yep. be actually kind of controlled. Do you see with the streaming kind of lexicon now with countries that, like you said, with India coming aboard, Asia coming aboard, are we going to see a major problem with China with, you know, they are known. And I mean, I don't mean to, to put them in a box, but like uh, it's been known that they're very good at, at, at technical espionage. Um, are we going to see kind of the same attitude with music that hasn't been there before where it's, you know, the old school getting sold on the streets on CDs, not that they would do that, but be used in places that maybe, you know, say commercials or like, yeah, I mean, look, you're talking, you're talking to the guy that was one of the litigators on the Napster case, yep. one of the litigators on the Zoc case. 
and I've dealt with anti-piracy concerns for a long time, and I understand that whole mentality. I definitely am much more for put it up, put it out, let it cons- get consumed these days, and let. Um, uh, I'm not worried. There's plenty of room for everybody. That, I mean, streaming yeah. is just booming, and I don't really. I'm not like sweating that. You know what I mean? Maybe I should be. Maybe I'm not knowledgeable enough uh, in in what's to come technologically from uh, you know other rest of world territories. But I uh, I say you know if I can build a touring base in India or China, if I can sell merch, if I can like I want people to consume this music. Yeah, and, and there's and there's so few yeah. people who go there already. Like right. you know the one I can think of in the past 10 years that's been the most consistent is Maiden because they could fly themselves there. Yeah. I mean, look, you know, I, I, and all that. Iron Maiden could do no wrong in my eyes. There, there's, neither, there's just, a, neither mind. They're like, great about that. But I could do a whole podcast episode about my love for Iron Maiden, but the, uh, um, the, uh, you know, I'm working with a Mongolian band right now called the who, Ooh, yeah. and that's been really interesting and culturally eye opening. Um, I have a lot of, you know, diverse clients from a lot of diverse parts of the world and uh, a lot of diverse backgrounds. And it, it's fun. I mean, as the world is moving more in those types of directions towards opening up, uh, you know, rock and roll is not a straight white male uh, thing like it once maybe thought that it was. Um, I think that, uh, uh, you know, all of these new countries and new opportunities, it's almost like we're questing something different, right? There are certain limitations in rock and roll perceived, uh, you know, potentially in terms of it's, uh, you know, fundamentally guitar, bass and drums and things like that. Right. And there are only so many chords that sound good. And there's been a lot of songs written and, you know, you can do a great job of making fantastic music and still be missing that something, that extra something. But then if you flip it, if it's like something unexpected, if it's, a person that comes from a background or looks a certain way that wouldn't be expected to be in that role. Or if you bring different uh, cultural influences and certain other types of genres and music into to bear on this, um, you know, you start to flavor it up enough that uh, it suddenly, you know, it sounds fresh again. And so I'm always looking for those types of things that are, that are interesting, that are different and uh, because we're in the attention business now, Mike, mm-hmm. and, you know, grab somebody's attention, you got to cut through that din. And you do that with something. It could be an arresting sound. It can be a lyric that comes right out of the box that you hear. And you say, whoa, wait, did they just say that? Or it could be this person does not look like what I expected. I want to know more, you know, but I would, whatever it is. This is the entertainment business. It's got to be entertaining and things that are unique and different are entertaining. So, you know, I, I, that's where I'm at is trying to find those things. Obviously, the best of the best, no matter what they look like or what they sound like, there it is, right? Yeah. But uh, if we can find things that are, that are different or interesting, I think uh, that, that, that keeps it fresh. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It, it's it's so interesting to me, you know, how this, how it's, you know, ever changing from when I started in it in 92 to now. Um, and I feel like we're at the best spot we've been in kind of the streaming world of Spotify, iTunes, since that whole game started up in 05. 
It's a new, it's a new yeah, it's, boom town. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like it's the wild west all over again is what's like, what I kind of like about it because it gives anybody be great. Like is coming out of COVID yeah. um, getting the touring component overlay onto all these newfound digital skills that everybody's mind, yeah. whether it's Twitch, TikTok, or whatever um, live streaming game, like bringing it all to bear, but then adding in the touring and adding in the physical live component. I think it's going to be great. I think first there's a thirst and a hunger for music and these experiences and, and the bands have gotten more organized and more internet savvy or uh, uh, let, let's call it digitally literate. Yeah. Right? And, it's fun- uh, yeah. It's funny how you mentioned that because my buddy, Tim Halley from, for an autopsy, he's really into doing Twitch and he, you know, him and I have had long conversations about it, about how like it's how he connects with his fans in a meaningful, deep way. And like, he'll sit there and watch movies with them. I know several, several artists that kept themselves alive on Twitch. Yeah. There was a particular manager that I work with that became really hip to Twitch real quick at the beginning of this and really started, you know, causing a name for himself, uh, onboarding people onto Twitch. And, and it was great to watch. And, I got to see that from a front row seat and I got to you know, get some checks from some artists that commissioned me on, on Twitch and wow. they're pretty cool. That's amazing. When you see artists that couldn't, couldn't really generate much income before the pandemic, primarily touring hard rock artists that suddenly are making more money now. Most uh, definitely. During the pandemic, yeah, yeah that, that's a pretty good sign. It shows you that, we were just, I don't think things changed so much as we we're uh, a lot of artists were leaving money on the table and we're not exploring all these different ad- avenues that they were now forced to explore. Yeah, no, exactly. And to your point, leaving money on the table, it's like, I've always felt like if you're not at your, if you're not doing your best to not so much exploit, but proliferate the brand that you have, whether it's by boat, air, sea, or land, you know, why not do it? You know, I, I don't see it. Uh, it's the attention business. Like you said, but yeah. I, mean, I think I said before, yeah. um, we, we, we gotta forget that. Like when you post on social media, let's say the first time you post on social media, you put a great post up and then what are you three months later, you're going to post again. And then six months later, you're going to post again. No, you got to keep it coming. You keep content is every day or every couple times a week or whatever. You just keep it coming yeah. and you build it and it's slow and it's incremental. And it's just like eating your vegetables or going to the gym. You're not going to go to the gym once or eat a plate of vegetables and suddenly be fit and, and really happy with yourself. You have to do it day out consistently over time. Right? So what I've learned is you have to, you have to constantly be top of mind. You have to continue to feed the beast and grow incrementally and one day, if you go to the gym every day for nine months, and then one day you look in a mirror and say, wait a minute, I look a little better. When did that happen? And it, <laughs> it's, it's uh, you have to uh, continue to release music consistently. But in between those releases, and the, sh- the windows are shorter and shorter than ever, but you have to be doing other types of content. You do uh, new studio songs, and maybe there's a cover version yeah. or or an acoustic version. There's a lyric video. There's an actual video. Uh, uh, and uh, the uh, there is a lot of, uh, you know, 
uh, then then there's behind the scenes footage, and then there's talking to the fans, and then there's lifestyle stuff, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think over time that becomes, uh, uh, you know, fans just get used to it. Like I got used to, I wanted to see a new episode of WandaVision every Friday, right? I I posted tonight just now on my Instagram story. I said I love Thursdays. Why do I love Thursdays? Because new music's coming out Friday. I can't wait for 9 p.m. So all the new stuff I've been working on comes out. And I kind of, just like a teenage uh, teenager looking for that social media serotonin hit, every time my clients release music, I just, I'm like the cat that ate the canary. I'm just like, and, so, and you have a bunch coming out tomorrow. I mean, Chad Gray, Gray's cover looks amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and you know chad's got some really great stuff in store coming up yeah. but uh there there's you know every week uh if i don't have new music coming out on thursday night i'm like kind of bummed i don't get that rush of releasing the music and of, of course i'm sick and wrong so don't try this at home kids but like i'm constantly looking at data looking at analytics and i spend my time uh, It's like to just look at the, you know, what's streaming and I'm constantly looking at Spotify play counts and YouTube play oh, counts. Yeah. I think that's like, for me that, you know, when I first came up as an engineer, like I would study the liner notes of a record, like would know every person who worked with who, who worked <laughs> with other people on other records and just know what the numbers were. I think that's, I think that's critical to know in your business. I, I mean, personally, I don't think you're second wrong. I think you're you're absolutely right. <laughs> well, um, I'm just texting someone that uh, I got a call from an important person, but uh, I said I am doing something very cool. Typical <laughs> Mike Jackson. So yeah, like that stuff is um, that to me that is uh, uh, data. It's so fun. It's like yeah. watching stock tickers and sports scores. And with all of the technology things, I like this this thing called chart metric. I look at all the time. I'm obviously looking at Spotify for artists. I've got the publishers, uh, my BMG portal. I love to i I get access. I look at my I get access to my artist sound exchange back end, and you know I'm I'm like I'm literally on a Saturday afternoon with a cup of coffee, sit there and just cruise and do a lap through all those and just see who's doing what, and then and then take a look at what they're doing. Uh, you know, uh, how they're, if they release this video that impacted their Instagram followers, or if they put out a new song on Spotify and they got this playlist, what, you know, what was the impact on their TikTok or, you know, whatever. And, and just constantly trying to figure it out and crack the code and hack the system. It's fun. It's interesting you say that because that's the one thing I find when managing my artist DJ is like, are we strategizing based upon the numbers or are we strategizing ahead of time? And I always find it's a little bit of both. Like, are we taking it to, you know, the next level because we did really well here. So let's focus on this. Do you yeah, find I, yourself I, a lot doing that a lot? Yeah. I think, I think that it's so easy to release music. The barriers to entry are so low mm-hmm. that you put things out and you can figure out what's working. Right. And you can find what your fans want. You got to find that formula. Right. So there, people are so precious about releasing music. They're yeah. trying to perfect record and they want to wait. And they, they're so worried that like, maybe I shouldn't put this out because that big record company deal is going to come or something. I tell people, release your music, make engage with your fans, grow it, 
step by step and, you know, and adjust, analyze and adjust, release, assess, you know, adjust, create, release, assess, adjust, create, and just keep doing that and refining it until you find something that works. The beautiful thing is if you put out a song and then you put out another one, another one, eventually you can, you'll, you'll, you'll figure out what is working. What does the world want to hear from me? Right. What can I do that, that seems to have an audience. And once you find an audience, it doesn't have to be huge. If you find a hundred people that aren't your mom and aren't your, uh, you don't know them yeah. and, and they, and they actually not your friends that are obligated that are trying to be nice or whatever. But literally I say to some people, to bands, I say, would you listen to that? And they're like, oh, it's pretty rad. I'm like, no, seriously. Outside of this, if you weren't in the band, would you driving in your car alone? Would you like put that on and listen? Would you like go to a party and say, whoa, whoa, whoa. you know that time, Mike, when you love a record and you're like, dude, you have to hear this. And you know, you're almost addicted. You want to hear the song again mm-hmm. and again. Be happy, right? Most definitely. Find that, right? Once you find that, and you got that where you've got, I don't care if it's 15 people, but if people who you don't know are loving this to the point where they're cranking it on their own outside of your presence, give them more than that. Find that and then do more of that and then push that. And if you don't have that, if that's not happening, then keep adjusting and make changes and don't, don't stick with that. But in other words, you don't need to have a multi-million in a streaming hit you just need you just need to put out music and you'll you'll know you'll know does anyone give a shit about this or not and if people give a shit because it's so easy yeah this is one thing i've said before uh publicly but i think it's amazing in the old days i would try to bring people to people say can you bring some people out to my showcase the band wants to play they're gonna play the whiskey can you get a bunch of industry people to come out okay or i was talking to someone today Sometimes a manager would email all their industry friends and say, this is my new band that just came out this week. Here's what uh, I want you to hear it. I just want some general industry awareness. I take all the songs that, that I work on that I put out uh, and I share them on my Instagram story mm-hmm. and I see who looked at it. And I don't have a gigantic audience, but I have a I mean, I have, you know, hundreds or potentially thousands of people that work in the music industry, whether they're in a band or an agent, or or they're a manager, or they work at a record company on there. And I can see who looked at the story, right? So I can take 15 seconds of everything that I work on yeah. and push it out on my Instagram stories. And I know that now all of those people now know what that band sounds like. It's pretty cool, right? Yeah. I mean, that's a great... Inversely, this is funny. I opened up the Spotify desk app and I judged the shit out of everybody because you can see what they listen to. <laughs> what their spins are. <laughs> I don't hear anybody talking about that, but so there's that guy that's always listening to his own band. And there's like, it's like I'm going to goose my spin. Right? Here we go. Exactly. You know. and, and, then, and then there's, you know, people that listen to like things that are way out of whack or they're clearly their ch- children are accessing their Spotify accounts. Pretty funny. Yeah. And I wonder when they see my name scroll by there, you know, <laughs> but it's cool. And you can see who's, who's watching this stuff. Right. And so I can put out songs and I can get it in front of people instantly and get feedback instantly and then watch the data and see this worked. This one did better. 
or if you put out this type of video, you know, I have some beautiful women that when they put out a certain video that focuses on their uh, face or whatever, they might do better than if it, if they don't star in the video or I have uh, certain kinds of uh, clients that, you know, if they're doing push-ups, uh, you know, they'll get this many hits, but if they're uh, singing their song, no one cares. And, you know, you can constantly look and adjust and assess and, and just totally. find it. And once you find it, and guess what? You can't find it until you play, like science, right? You have to do experiments. You have to do many. You uh, you to win it. Yeah. And once you get, once you, you got to put out songs. And then we put out, I tell people six to eight songs spread six to eight weeks apart. You'll find it. You'll figure out what works. And if you're, if it's totally not working at that point, you don't have any kind of activity. I don't mean a super hit, but if you're not seeing a fan base start to react, then maybe you got to rethink the whole project, right? Yeah, no, totally. And that's the thing is like, we've, we've gone through strategy of like, you know, I was originally like, Oh, we'll just put the whole record out. <laughs> this will be fun. And it's like, no, you have no fan base you need to filter that out over time and kind of give them, give whatever your fan base is going to be some time to grasp onto it. I think. Yeah. Make every song in advance. No one, look, if no one wants to hear your one song, they certainly don't want to hear 10, right? Sure. If you and the cost and the time and everything that's associated with that, there's really only going to be one of those songs that's going to be featured on a playlist. That's going to be on the radio. And you know what I say is if you have eight songs, and you stretch it out. If you have six to eight songs spread out over sixty-eight weeks apart, that's thirty-six to what sixty-four weeks, right? That's yeah. most of a year, more than a year, and that gives you plenty of time to go out there and really do this. You can make unique artwork and merch designs for each thing, and you otherwise you're going to do the whole thing, and then you're going to have to go dark because you yeah. don't have any more content. You, you know, so uh, you give people the chance to engage with it over time. And that's clearly what's going on now. Yeah. yeah. People that are critics of the streaming services would say, well, now what I'm, I'm constantly having to create content for these people so they can make money and give me fractions of pennies. Yup. That's how it works. That's the calling card for everything else you want to do. Right. You know, it's it's the way I see it, man. It's been such a pleasure having you here today. (laughs) Really. Thank you. I just it's really fun to talk to you too. And Mike, I do want to say you are a one one of the great I just absolutely love talking and engaging with you because you really care about music. You've done it Thanks, from man. a lot of perspectives. You care about these artists and there are so many of them that actually truly love you in a genuine way. That's what drew me to you. Like I oh, Thanks, man. provide a sort of calm, cool and you know, quality in a sea sharks you're you're one of the good guys, and and I know that you come it from come at it from a genuine love of music, and so you you and I are always going to be cool. And oh, I, I thanks, brother. You giving me a platform to yap about the way I see the world. Hey, we'll have to do another one about our 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 gathered love of Iron Maiden. <laughs> like I said, I can talk uh, I can talk ages about Maiden, and uh, just just to just to throw it out, I saw. The Power Slave Tour. You're killing in me. Oh, Smalls, you're killing me. Five or four? Yeah, no, it was like, 85. It was 85. It was 85. At the Glens Falls Civic Center with Accept opening up with Udo oh Dirchner. I was the Walls Tour, wasn't it? Yeah. 
And that that was metal heart. Uh, right? Yes. And uh, I just Night was mover. so right, I was so enamored by uh Maiden and just you know, they have been with me uh all this time. So. First tour I saw was somewhere in time at Meadowlands when it all went really bad. That was awesome. I I saw the tour with Ingve opening up and very uh, when's the last time you saw Iron Maiden for I me? Soccer Stadium here in uh, uh, LA down by USC. Yes. And then the time before that was uh, Book of Souls in uh, Glen Helen. Right. Yeah. I, I love them. Show I don't go to. Trust me. It's, uh, <laughs> I, a huge fan. Anyway, Mike, thank you so much for having Thanks me. Thanks so much, Eric. We'll talk soon. It's great to talk to you. Take care. Thanks, my man.